0: Our scripture reading this morning is Matthew 21:28 through 46. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, "Son, go and work in the vineyard today." And he answered, "I will not," but afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said to, and said the same. And he answered, "I go, sir," but did not go. Which of the two will which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death, and let the vineyard and let out the vineyard to other tenants, who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that build that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is as marvelous in his eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls in the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds, because they held him to be a prophet. The word of the Lord.
1: Amen. Welcome uh, to The Painted Door. My name is Mark. If you're new, good to have you with us. In the uh, final week of Jesus' biological life, natural life, uh, here on earth, often known as Holy Week, he began to exert authority in a profoundly provocative way. He started to stick his finger into the eye, the proverbial eye of the religious system of the day. On Monday of that week, he went into the temple in Jerusalem and drove out all of the money changers that were doing business there. This was a violent and brazen act, this cleansing of the temple, that was an affront to all of the religious posturing of his day. On Tuesday, he proceeded to curse a fig tree, the fig tree representative of the law, and spoke, prophesied to that fig tree, you will never bear fruit. This again, a direct affront to a millennium of rabbinic teaching about the law and its purpose of bearing fruit in the lives of those who would hear it. Jesus was castigating the entire religious system of the day. He was asserting his superiority over all of the rabbinic tradition that had gone before him. He was flexing his authority. And as you might expect, this ruffled some feathers. Because all of the religious leaders of the day, not only were their livelihoods being threatened by Jesus' exertion of authority, but everything that they held dear was being undermined. He was challenging all of it. And so the religious leaders of the day believed that it was incumbent on them to publicly undermine Jesus, to beat him at his own game, to show to the crowds in the street that this man, though he is exerting this authority, has no right to do so. And so the religious leaders came to him and issued a public challenge to him, and that public challenge was concerning his authority. They asked him this question, by what authority do you do and say these things. And it's in the context of this challenge to Jesus' authority that the parables of Matthew 21 that we just read play out. Jesus has no interest in responding to this challenge in good faith. He, in fact, uses this occasion, this public confrontation, to further exacerbate the situation. He is not interested in diffusing this confrontation. He's interested in escalating it. And so rather than answer these religious leaders in good faith, he ignores their question as he was wont to do and begins to tell stories. Two parables, in fact. And he says this, The first of the parables. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And the man went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? Okay, you see... What Jesus is doing here. What a question. Which of the two did the will of the Father? The religious leaders of the day are challenging Jesus on his authority. They're challenging his right to exercise such superiority over their religious system. Jesus says, rather than get into a squabble about who has more authority, me or you, Why don't we instead answer the question of what it is that the highest authority in all the universe would have us do? Why don't we begin to address the question of what it is that God, our Father, wants us to do? Only then, when we've established what it is that the highest authority wills, can we begin to discuss which of us is the obedient son. So he's elevating the question to a higher Principle. What is it that God, the Father, actually wants us to do? Now, the religious leaders don't catch on to this right away. They're not hip to the flip that Jesus is pulling on them here. So when he asks them, which of these two sons did the will of the Father, they happily answer, in Matthew 21, starting in 31b, they said, the first, the first of the two sons. The one who said he wouldn't, but then wound up going into the vineyard. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. There you have it. Trap set, bait laid, bait taken, trap Shut. The religious leaders have condemned themselves here without even knowing it because, unbeknownst to them, they are second sons. The religious leaders of the day are people who have devoted their entire lives to a posture of yes, Father. They have adorned themselves in the posture of saying yes to God. They have gone about memorizing his law and reciting it in the streets. They have draped themselves in the temple garments. They are adorned in holiness. They are literally draped in yes, Father. And this is a public demonstration over the course of their entire lives. We are those people... Who have obeyed the Father's will. They are signaling that as far and as wide as they can. We are the sort of sons who obey the Father's will, the sort of people who say yes to God. But for all of that posturing, for all of that public signaling that they are devoted followers of God, When the rubber actually meets the road They will not obey him They will not yield to him They will not follow him They will not submit to him Because quite frankly it is too costly It's too humiliating It's too humiliating now In the face of this petulant Nobody from Nazareth that these high and mighty religious leaders who have committed their lives to religious devotion should bend the knee and submit to his superiority, to his higher authority. That would undermine all that they are. That would undermine all of their yes. It would undermine all of their public signaling about their devotion to God. Their system would crumble. They would be reduced to nobody's they would come in under even this nobody from Nazareth and so they refuse when saying yes to god meant to them that they could gain some social capital when saying yes to god meant to them that they could establish themselves as higher authority when saying yes to god meant that they could belong in a community When saying yes to God meant that they could benefit from all of the comforts of church life, they were happy to do so. These religious leaders were saying yes on all those fronts, but when saying yes to God meant believing that they were underneath this nobody from Nazareth, it was too much for them. It would have meant giving up all of their posturing and being exposed as the lost, misguided frauds that they really were. Losing their reputation, losing their good name, losing the credibility of their ministry. No, no, no. They were not actually interested in doing the will of the Father. They were only interested in assuring everyone around them that they were obedient to the will of the Father. They were only interested in amassing the benefits they could by playing church. My family and I uh, got back just a few days ago from a two-week-long trip to the wonderful Pacific Northwest we spent most of the time in my hometown of Seattle. I should say former hometown of Seattle. actually went to a Mariners game, and I cheered for the Sox, who lost in the bottom of the 11th. And the whole stadium poured rancor on me. Uh, but we spent a couple days up in Vancouver as well, in Bellingham as well. It was a refreshing time of rest, lots of time of sitting by, The pool in my parents' backyard and enjoying barbecues on their enchanting deck and hanging out in the backyard. And one of the things that's become a regular in my parents' backyard is we play Bags. Do you know this game? Bags. If you're from Kansas or Nebraska, it might be called Cornhole. Terrible name. Bags is what it's called here in Chicago. Uh, I was sure to convert my parents to calling it that as well. And for the first several days that we were playing bags, I was on fire. If you know what bags is, it's a game that has two boards placed about 30 feet apart with a single hole in each board. And the point of the game is to toss a bean bag toward the board in hopes that it would fall through the hole or at least land on the board and stay there. And you score points for getting a bag either on the board or into the hole. Well, For those first few days, it was as though I was standing at the end of a pier in the middle of the ocean trying to throw pebbles into the water. I just could not miss. It was hole after hole after hole. And I was driving my uncle and my dad and my brother crazy because they couldn't beat me. And I started thinking to myself, you know, this bags game is just all right with me. It's a pretty good game. Uh... I'm really enjoying also, though, the time with my father and the time with my brother and the time with my uncle. I mean, the great thing about the game of bags is that it requires only one hand, which conveniently then leaves the other hand free to shovel an endless amount of food and adult liquids into your gullet, right? So much for my low-carb lifestyle. But I was really enjoying this, and I was sure that this was going to be the most refreshing thing about this trip, asserting my superiority and dominance, oh, and also enjoying the company of these fine, fine fellows who could not beat me. But then something strange began to happen. I got the yips. Have you ever gotten the yips? I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. The yips is when some athletic maneuver that you have done thousands of times suddenly becomes completely impossible i remember i got the yips when i was a freshman in high school and i tried out for the baseball team and the tryout was going great the first couple of days and then suddenly i got the yips and i couldn't throw the baseball 90 feet I was throwing ground balls and pop flies, I had no release point. This happens to professional baseball players, happens to professional golfers, happens to a lot of athletes who have to do some repetitive, mindless motion. All of a sudden you get your left brain and your right brain crossed and you've got the yips. It's a mental thing. And so we're playing bags and suddenly not only could I not hole out a bag anymore, I couldn't get within 10 feet of the board. I mean, that bag was flying everywhere, (laughs) up on the deck, you know, into my mom's drink. Uh, I think I threw a ground ball at one point, and my uncle and my brother—I mean, they thought I was kidding around. You know, they thought I was sort of sticking it to them because I'd been beating them so badly. Uh, And I tried to sort of laugh and pretend that I was playing around too, in hopes that I would rediscover that golden motion that had set me into such glory. But no, this was no joke. I was having a complete bags meltdown. And suddenly I started to think, you know, I don't know if I really care that much for spending all this time in the backyard. Um, Not sure I'm really into this bags game. You know, I've hung out with my uncle and my brother enough for one day. Maybe I'll find my way into the front yard, try my hand at croquet. Now that's a silly backyard diversion, and if I spend the rest of my life never throwing another bag, I won't lose too much sleep over that. But what happens when church, a place that you have benefited from and come to enjoy, Suddenly doesn't work for you anymore What happens when church suddenly starts to become painfully awkward What happens when in church being in church starts to become a public humiliation This thing that you've come to count on Suddenly starts to be painful or just weird Many of you have experienced that many of you know what that's like what happens when you start to actually lose reputation in the church lose your good name have your legs taken out from under you lose the respect of the people that you are worshiping with jesus asked which son did the will of the father Was it the one who spent a lifetime of posturing yes? The one who was absolutely committed to signaling as far and wide as possible that I am a person after God, that I am a yes person to God. But then when public humiliation, when cost actually came, shrank back Or was it the son who had long since lost? The son who had nothing to lose any longer. The son who had given up completely on any reputation of decency. The son who everyone knew was a slacker. The son who at the end of the day could wander into his father's vineyard and be thought a clown. Be thought a fool. Be thought a nobody. Jesus said, which son did the will of the Father? What is the will of the Father? Jesus actually tells us plain as day, if you've read John's Gospel, quoting Jesus from chapter 6, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, And I will raise him up on the last day. The will of the Father, the will of God, is that we would believe in his Son for life. That we would cast our whole lot in with Jesus. That we would hang everything on him. All of our joy and even our very life on him. That we would count on him for all things, no matter what else it cost us. That we would release everything else. That we would suffer even public humiliation, the loss of standing, all of it, if only to stake our joy and life on Jesus only. That's the will of the Father. And this Jesus, who was given all authority by his father, he then told these religious leaders a second parable. He said that there was a master who set up a vineyard, a winemaking vineyard, complete with wine press, and then rented it out to some tenants and moved off into a far country. And he sent some servants come harvest time to gather the yield of grapes and make some wine, but these tenants that he had leased the vineyard to would have none of it, and they killed and they stoned and they beat these servants. And so the master sent more servants and they suffered the same fate. And so the master finally said, perhaps if I send my own son, they will receive him. They'll respect him enough to receive him and he'll be able to enjoy the yield of my work, the wine from my vineyard. But no, even this son, the tenants had no interest in doing the will of the master. They had no interest in the will of the master altogether. They simply wanted to live in the master's house while it suited them and be undisturbed by what his will or desire might be. They actually wanted nothing to do with the master, certainly not trusting him. They just wanted pleasant, undisturbed backyard barbecues without the trouble of the master asking anything of them. I tell you this, when it comes to life with God, you will not be left undisturbed. You will not be let alone. You will not be left alone by the Master. He will send his son to you, and it will be an occasion of great disturbance. There will come moments of great cost. When the most precious thing you hold on to Even your good name Even all of the work that you have done To signal to others or to yourself That you are on track That you are holding it together That you are worthwhile That you bring something to the table That you have some internal intrinsic value And good to offer That your hands are full of something That can serve others or this world That you have purpose and meaning All of that Will be greatly disturbed by the coming of the sun. In fact, God will ask you to let go of everything that you have called good. He'll ask you to let go of everything that you believe is necessary for you to have life and joy. He'll ask you to let go of even your very life itself. He will come and disturb you. The pleasant, undisturbed backyard barbecue will not go on forever. He will send you his son, this nobody from Nazareth who got himself killed, and this son will say to you, follow me. Follow me into that death. Many will not go. Because the cost is too high. We have too much to lose. Unwilling to give up our religious posturing, our lifetime of projecting that we're doing fine. Here's the good news. Your good name, your reputation, your public signaling as one who says yes to God, it is all already lost. You have already lost. God is taking the veil off of it all. Public exposure is at hand. Soon, The whole cosmos will know that in your own independent person is only rotting flesh. Why not simply acknowledge it now and begin to participate in the life and death of Jesus? Jesus is the only Savior we have. And he's the only Savior who says to us that in the middle of that rotting corpse, in the middle of that death, in your undoing, in the collapse of your posturing, there is life and joy eternal. There is a life that springs out of letting go of pretending letting go of posturing letting go of trying to convince others and God and mostly yourself that you are far more than you actually are there is a life that springs from humiliation and it is the life of Jesus he proved it he showed us The way. He let his Father take everything from him, going even to the cross and breathing his last breath, suffering the ultimate humiliation and shame only to prove and vindicate that God meets us in those most desperate places of despair and loss the horror of exposure is not the end of the story. God lived it before us and he will meet us there. In Mark's telling of this parable, he ends it this way, speaking about the religious leaders in Mark 12. It says, They were seeking to arrest him but feared the people for they perceived that he told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Jesus has told this parable against us all. He's told this parable against all of us who cling to our reputation and good name. But we need not slink away in sadness. Being exposed, suffering humiliation will not be the end of us It will be the beginning. Only trust him. Let's pray. Father, fill us with your spirit and grant us courage. Grant us courage to receive your son when you send him to us. When the lump in our throat is overwhelming and we're overcome with nausea and grief and fear at the prospect of being known. Would you unclench our jaw and loose our hands that we would let go of everything we have clutched after and held onto, that we would slump into grace and find you and life there. Grant us joy in your Son. Amen.